Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for today's episode with the one and only President Carter. This interview actually took place 10 years ago at the beginning of my journey. I had the privilege and opportunity to be asked to interview President Carter at the Carter Center in Atlanta for the Parliament of the World's Religions. And having just come back from New York and uh, Global Citizen was our seventh uh, annual festival. And I got to go back and and participate and and witness um, how the festival has grown with the the current team and see how, you know, this idea that we birthed some seven years ago has evolved in very, very beautiful ways. And it made me reflect as I thought about this interview with President Carter about how some things have changed and some things haven't. Uh, This episode is... uh, really a presentation around President Carter's decision to leave the Southern Baptist Church for its treatment of women and girls, and really a call to to our inherent human dignity. And one of the things that came up for me is my admiration uh, and my really profound respect for how President Carter has lived his life and with deep humility and reverence, I think, for, you know, our shared humanity. Um, And at, you know, 85, 95, he's the exemplar in many regards of humble leadership. Uh, He still lives in, you know, the area he grew up in and, you know, in in a modest home you know, has his, his, his similar routines uh, where he, you know, shares time with members of his community, highly accessible, and, uh, you know, instead of building, uh, you know, a wall around himself, has really made himself a pillar in his community and, and for the community and world at large. And so in honor of that uh, spirit, I wanted to share a little bit more of my experience uh, My time with President Carter was really inspirational because he was, at the time, 85 years old, and today he celebrates his 95th birthday. So in honor of his birthday and his legacy of compassion, one of the things that strikes me about President Carter is he still lives extraordinarily humbly and as a servant to uh, something greater than himself. Um, he is a, a believer. He is also uh, a humble servant and does tr- profound work with the Carter Center around different humanitarian causes. So I, I really was blown away by his mental acuity, his intelligence, his humility. And I wanted to revisit this speech in honor of his birthday. And really what struck me most is I love the stand that he took personally in reverence for the equality of others and specifically the dignity that needs to come from, I think, men taking a stand for women. And in this uh, episode, you'll hear uh, President Carter's rationale, his deeply personal rationale behind his decision to leave the, the Southern Baptist Church 
and his call for the respecting of the dignity of us all and our shared humanity. And with that, it's my great pleasure to share with you, again, an interview that I did some 10 years ago at the Carter Center for uh, President Carter's 95th birthday. I wanted to share this with you all to honor the man and his legacy. Without further ado, President Carter. I occupy a privileged position these days, best explained by a cartoon in New Yorker magazine. This old boy is looking up his father, and he says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a former president. Well, I'm no longer in public office, so I'm able to receive exciting invitations like this and also to speak without restraint on somewhat controversial subjects. I'm pleased to address the Parliament of World Religions about the vital role of religion in providing a foundation for or correcting the global scourge of discrimination and violence against women. As will be seen, my remarks represent the personal views of a Christian layman and a former political leader. There are international agreements as well as our own holy scriptures that guide us. Article 2 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states, and I quote, everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, or other kinds of things. The Holy Bible tells us that, and I quote again, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's letter to the Galatians 3.28. Every genetic religious text encourages believers to respect essential human dignity. Yet some selected scriptures are interpreted to justify the derogation or inferiority of women and girls, our fellow human beings. All of us have a responsibility to acknowledge and to address the gross acts of discrimination and violence against women that occur every day. Here are some well-known examples. Globally, at least one in three women and girls is beaten or sexually abused in her lifetime. That's the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, published in 2000. Our Carter Center has been deeply involved in the Republic of Congo. In war zones where order has broken down, horrific and sometimes lethal rape has become a tactic of warfare practiced by all sides. In a study in the year 2000, the United Nations estimated that at least 60 million girls who should be alive are missing from various populations, mostly in Asia, as a result of sex-selected abortions, infanticide, or neglect. According to UNICEF, an estimated one million children, mostly girls, enter the sex trade each year, and the UN estimates that four million women and girls are trafficked annually. In some Islamic nations, women are restricted in their movements, punished for permitting the exposure of an arm or an ankle, deprived of education, prohibited from driving a car or competing with men for a job. If a woman is raped, she is often most severely punished as a guilty party 
in the crime. The same discriminatory thinking lies behind the continuing gender gap in pay and explains why so few women hold public office, even in most Western democracies. You're all familiar with these facts, and I know you're considering the causes and possible solutions to this serious global problem. There are clear indications that progress is being made in the secular world. We've seen women chosen as leaders in nations as diverse as India, Pakistan, Indonesia, Israel, Great Britain, Ireland, Chile, Germany, the Philippines, and Nicaragua. Their support came from citizens who are predominantly Hindu, Islamic, Jewish, and Christian, and include two of the three largest democracies on earth. It is ironic that women are now welcomed into all the major professions and other positions of authority, but are branded as inferior and deprived of the equal right to serve God in positions of religious leadership. The plight of abused women is made more acceptable by the mandated subservience of women by religious leaders. Most Bible scholars acknowledge that the Holy Scriptures were written when male dominance prevailed in every aspect of life. Men could have multiple sex partners. We know King Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. But adulterous behavior by a woman could be punished by stoning to death. Both then, later in the time of Christ, and in some societies, 2009 years after Christ was born. I realize that devout Christians can find adequate scriptures to justify either side in this debate, but there is one incontrovertible fact concerning the relationship between Jesus Christ and women. He never condoned sexual discrimination or the implied subservience of women. The exaltation and later reverence for Mary as Jesus' mother is an even more vivid indication of the special status of women in, crea- in Christian theology. I have taught Bible lessons for more than 65 years, and I know that Paul forbade women to worship with their heads covered, uncovered, to braid their hair, or to wear rings or jewelry or expensive clothes. It's obvious to most modern-day Christians that Paul was not mandating permanent or generic theological policies. In a letter to Timothy, Paul also expresses a prohibition against women's teaching men. But we know, and he knew, that Timothy himself was instructed by his mother and his grandmother. At the same time, in Paul's letters to the Romans, he listed and thanked 28 outstanding leaders of the early churches, at least 10 of whom were women. And I quote from Paul, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. Greet greet, uh, Prisca and Aquila, who worked with me in Christ Jesus. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. It's clear that during the early Christian era, women served 
as deacons, priests, bishops, apostles, teachers, and prophets. It wasn't until the fourth century, or the third at the earliest, that dominant Christian leaders, all men, twisted and distorted Holy Scriptures to perpetuate their ascendant positions within the religious hierarchy. My own Southern Baptist Convention leaders ordained in recent years that women must be subservient to their husbands and prohibited from serving as deacons, pastors, chaplains in the military service, or teachers of men. They based this on a few carefully selected quotations from St. Paul and also from Genesis, claiming that Eve was created second to Adam and was responsible for original sin. This was in conflict with my own personal belief that we are all equal in the eyes of God. The Roman Catholic Church and many others revere the Virgin Mary, but consider women unqualified to serve as priests. This view that the Almighty considers women to be inferior to men is not restricted to one religion or tradition. Its influence does not stop at the walls of the church, the mosque, the synagogue, or temple. Women are prevented from playing a full equal role in many faiths, creating an environment in which violations against women are justified. The truth is that male religious leaders have had, and they still have, an option to interpret Holy Scripture teachings either to exalt or to subjugate women. They have, for their own selfish ends, overwhelmingly chosen the latter, subjugation. Their continuing choice provides a foundation or justification for much of the pervasive persecution and abuse of women throughout the world. This is in clear violation, not just of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but also the teachings of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, Moses and the prophets, Mohammed, the founders of other great religions, all of whom have called for proper and equitable treatment of all the children of God. It is time we had the courage to challenge these views and set a new course that demands equal rights for women and men, for girls and boys. At their most repugnant, the belief that women are inferior human beings in the eyes of God gives excuses to the brutal husband who beats his wife, the soldier who rapes a woman, the employer who has a lower pay scale for women employees, or parents who decide to abort a female embryo. It also costs many millions of girls and women control over their own bodies and lives and continues to deny them fair and equal access to education, health care, employment, and influence within their own communities. Recently, I presented my concerns to a group of fellow leaders known as the elders, who represent practicing Protestants and Catholics and Muslims and Hindus. We are no longer active in politics and are free to express our honest opinions. We decided collectively to draw particular attention to the role of religious and traditional leaders in obstructing the campaign for equality and human rights and promulgated a statement that declares, and I quote, the justification of discrimination against women and girls 
on grounds of religion or tradition, as if it were prescribed by a higher authority, is unacceptable. Having served as local, state, national, and world leaders, we understand why many public officials can be reluctant to question ancient religious and traditional premises, an arena of great power and sensitivity. Despite this, we are calling on all those with influence to challenge and to change the harmful teachings and practices in religious and secular life that justify discrimination against women, and to acknowledge and emphasize the positive messages of equality and human dignity. Thank you. Thank you, President Carter. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to be here with you, and uh, I thank you for your incredible remarks. Um, we'd like to welcome in at this point uh, the Parliament in Melbourne joining us, and uh, they've uh, given me the honor of presenting with you, presenting you with a few questions. Uh, our first question is, um, why, why focus on the equality of women and girls now? Well, it's not just a recent uh, concern of mine. Uh, all during my life, uh, particularly since I've been in public office, I've seen that there is almost an ingrained and widely accepted premise in the secular and religious world to treat women as secondary citizens in the eyes of the state and also in the eyes of God. And this has concerned me. I, I would say that I have been most familiar with the practice of the uh, Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox and others who don't permit women to serve as priests, but let them serve as nuns and nurses and so forth. That's a discrimination with which I didn't uh, agree. But I, it really became more vivid to me about the year 2000 uh, when, as I said here, my own uh, Southern Baptist Convention, where I was one of the leaders in the convention, uh, made rulings about the subjugation and derogation of women that I really couldn't accept personally. And uh, my wife and I just announced that we would no longer be part of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, organization. And so we have uh, continued as Baptist, but in a church where my wife Rosen is a deacon, and am I, uh, where our pastor is a man, and we have a, a co-pastor who is a woman, and we have other women deacons, and I would say that many of the more moderate Baptists now, as well as other denominations, uh, now treat uh, women as complete equals in the eyes of God uh, in the church uh, functions as leaders. So uh, this is a, a longstanding uh, concern of mine. And I've made some public uh, speeches in Ireland and other places just pointing out that one of the basic causes of the acceptance of discrimination on a sexual basis in uh, secular society is based on the premise that religious leaders say that women are inferior in the eyes of God. And so this has been a major concern of mine. And when I finally, when the uh, elders was organized uh, just a couple of years ago, this was one of the things that I put on the table. And I was very lucky to find out that Bishop Tutu, who is a fellow Protestant, uh, and uh, Mary Robinson uh, and former President Cardoso of, uh, of uh, Brazil, who are Catholics, and Lakhdar Brahimi, who happens to be Muslim, and Elibat, who is a Hindu, all agreed with me unanimously 
So we've been able to promulgate it a little more widely than before. But it's not a new subject with me. Uh, fantastic. Um, you mentioned Mary Robinson and Desmond Tutu and, and various international actors that have been uh, contending with this issue for quite some time. And my curiosity is, in all of your travels, um, part of what the Parliament wants to know is, how, in your kind of international experience, what are some of the ways, or can you think of a, of a particular example in which you've seen this issue attended to um, with uh, particularly well or with great strength? I can't say that I've seen it make much progress in the religious community. But as I mentioned in my t earlier remarks, in many of the greatest nations in the world, women have been chosen by their own fellow citizens to be the leaders. Uh, the largest democracy on earth is, um, happens to be Hindu in India. And we know that Mrs. Gandhi and others served there. Uh, this, the second largest uh, democracy on earth is the United States. We haven't chosen a woman yet, but uh, we have women prominently in government. And I would say the third was Indonesia. Uh, the Carter Center monitored the election there, and a woman was chosen to be uh, the president of Indonesia. So uh, in the secular world, women have uh, gained some, uh, made some progress. The, the Scandinavian countries probably do the best job in ensuring that members of parliament um, are served in, from both sections on a basically equal basis. And, and what's been interesting to me, I mentioned that the Carter Center helps with elections. We've monitored more than 70 elections on earth. And uh, last year we helped with the election in, uh, uh, in uh, Nepal. And part of the new proposal was that uh, a substantial portion of all the elected delegates to write a new constitution had to be women. And we are now preparing for an election in Sierra Leone, and Sierra Leone people, not us, have adopted the same premise that a certain portion of those elected must be women, and they have a separate ballot, as a matter of fact, just for women candidates. So uh, in governmental affairs, women are making good progress, I would say, in the political arena. Uh, they are making some progress also perhaps in uh, equality and in, in job opportunities as executive directors of corporations and also approaching equality in, in pay. In the United States now, though, a woman gets about 70% as much pay for the same service, maybe, in, maybe superior service. I can't say about that. Yeah. But, uh, but that's, I, so in, we are making some progress. But the, the main obstacle, in my opinion, is a continued, sustained belief in Islamic in the Islamic world, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and others, and in some Protestant denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention, that women are doomed to be treated as secondary in the eyes of God by being deprived of a right to serve equally with men uh, in their chosen faith. Uh, that transi transitions actually perfectly uh, into our final question from the Parliament, which, uh, given the charter uh, of the Parliament, um, they want to know, what do you see as the role of various religious communities um, in moving forward the issues of okay. women and girls? Well, I think every local uh, congregation, no matter what denomination it might be, no matter what faith it might be, can uh, start an effort in that local community to treat women equally within the religious community. Um, 
even though it might create some uh, dissension um, or disagreements with their neighboring churches, synagogues, mosques, and so forth. Uh, so the ones that attend this uh, conference, when they go home, I think have a responsibility personally to start making sure that women are treated equally within the religious community that they serve. Another thing that can be done, I believe, is on a more broad base, um, like within a denomination. We've seen the furor that's been created, for instance, in the Anglican Episcopal Church uh, because some militant and deeply convinced leaders wanted to give equal opportunity to homosexuals. Well, that's, uh, I think, a much more controversial issue than giving women equal rights. And uh, why not address it uh, within the Catholic Church uh, and within the Southern Baptist Convention and within the Islamic communities to demand uh, that within a generic sense that women are treated equally. Uh, I don't think it uh, would be hard to convince the participants in this particular conference that in the eyes of God, uh, women ought to be treated equally. Okay, let's fight for it uh, to a maximum degree, locally and in its broad-based a, um, a forum uh, as we can possibly address depending on our own influence. And we need not be timid. I think we need to be very forceful, speak out. And I think there's a great uh, eager audience among those who are now silent on the subject that have long been concerned, like I have and others, that that situation ought to be changed. I think, I think there would be a, a, a resounding uh, positive response to more militant demands that women are equal to men in every aspect of life. And the onus is on each of us to, uh, to, to rise up in, our, in ourselves to make that right. happen. The onus or the responsibility. Uh, exactly. Onus if we don't do it. Right. Uh, gratification if we do. Well, I can just say uh, humbly uh, from the council uh, on behalf, I know everyone is, is watching from, uh, from Melbourne, Australia, it's a, it's a true honor to be with you tonight, and, and I greatly appreciate your remarks and very much look forward to hearing uh, the inspired comments that I'm sure uh, they will lead to in Australia. Well, I hope so, and I'd like to get some feedback on what they say after I get off screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. So from, uh, from us here at the Carter Center, for myself, Michael Trainer, good night. And, and thanks uh, to everybody. Good night. Good night. And there you have it. Happiest of birthdays to President Carter, 95 years old today. What a representation of humility, of strength, of leadership. And someone who lives and leads from a place and devotion to something higher than themselves and calls for our inherent valuing of our fellow human beings for the empowerment and recognition of the strength of the feminine and the women around the world 
a call to honoring and respecting and seeing more women in profound positions of leadership. Um, it's time, and it's really powerful to see a president speak in the way that President Carter did uh, around his belief system. You know, 85 years old when he gave the interview, 95 years old today, and continuing to be dedicated to humanity, to living humbly and in service to those around him, to his community, to the world at large, and to standing for what he believes in. And I just want to honor him. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share time. And I'm wishing him the happiest of birthdays. Happy birthday, President Carter. And to all of you, go out there and live your inspired life.